Well, let's look at Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. We've already seen part of the chapter. I'm going to read from verses 1 through 15, just so we can get a view in our minds of of what's going on here. Early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and scribes and the whole council immediately held a consultation, and binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Pilate questioned him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, It is as you say. The chief priests began to accuse him harshly. Then Pilate questioned him again, saying, Do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer. So Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. The man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. The crowd went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. Pilate answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. Answering again, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, Crucify him! But Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. We've been following this grand cosmic drama. The audacity that man would put God on trial, literally. Yet we've also been exploring that figuratively, in a sense, we all put God on trial when we question His truth, when we question His ways, when we even question His timing as we sing this morning. We evaluate God and His revelation and weigh it in the scales, so to speak. And we shouldn't. God's truth is to be accepted, acknowledged, embraced, obeyed, proclaimed. Not not in the absence of reflection, because you need to know what it is God is telling you, but it's different when instead of reflecting on God's Word, You're evaluating and judging it. Is this something I can obey? I'll let you know, God. I'll get back to you. Well, God, you don't understand my life. You don't understand my relationships. 
you don't understand my coworker, my spouse, my children. Certainly, there is an alternative set of instructions for me. And in a sense, we put God on trial. Literally, here we see the Gentiles and the Jews putting God on trial. Let this sink in for a second. The council immediately held a consultation in binding Jesus. They shackled and handcuffed God. It's what we do when we ignore parts of God's Word. We can't handcuff God, though. Those handcuffs really couldn't stop Jesus. He had the authority and power to put a stop to this kangaroo court anytime he wanted. He was in complete control of the situation. In fact, I want you to see this morning that it's not really Jesus who is on trial. It's humanity that is on trial. They think they're trying Jesus. He's trying them. And he's letting them try themselves, so to speak. He's letting them speak freely. He's letting them display to the world the fallenness of humanity. We only hear Jesus say one thing in this passage, and he's just acknowledging the title King of the Jews. And he does so in an economy of words. In fact, it takes five words in my version to say what it was really two words in the Greek. It just really comes out, you said it. Yeah, that's me, I'm the King of the Jews. And then he's silent. So much so that it says Pilate was amazed. Pilate was hoping that this great teacher, this great man, this man of integrity, this, this man of morals, this man of great wisdom, this man who had answered every question the world had thrown at him, every question the religious leaders had thrown at him, would bail Pilate out in his moment of need. That Jesus would defend himself such that Pilate could say, I, I can't kill this man. Now, Pilate had the authority to do that anyways. And yet, as we read, wishing to satisfy the crowd. Wishing to satisfy the crowd. You see, Pilate and the Jews were no friends. No friends at all. He's a governor. He's in the holy city of Jerusalem during the Passover. The Jews didn't want him there. They didn't want to be governed. They didn't want the empire, the Roman empire over them. We read from the historian Josephus that when Pilate first took over governorship, he was told not to bring in any graven images or idols. And he basically said, well, I'll do whatever I want. I'm the governor. And he processed in with banners with the image of Caesar on it and set up those images. 
in this palace that he stayed in, which the text calls the Praetorium, because the Praetorian guard, the elite guard, uh, also housed themselves in this enormous palace built on a holy site. Pagan dictatorship, empire, profaning God's holy mount. And the Jews were not happy that Pilate did this. And they harassed him about it. Anywhere he went with his entourage, they would harass him. Under fear of great persecution and punishment, the Romans had their way, as you know, of keeping people under their thumb. But they wouldn't stop harassing Pilate. And at one point, Josephus tells us that Pilate ordered all the Jewish leadership to come to the amphitheater or a gathering place to consult with them. And so all the Jewish leadership shows up. And from hiding, out comes a whole Roman cohort, 600 men, heavily armed, heavily trained killers, surround the Jewish leadership. And Pilate says to them, You stop harassing me, or there will be a slaughter here today. I will display whatever images I care to display. I am the governor. And the Jewish leadership, as God has described them, a stiff-necked people, rolled down their cloaks to expose the back of their necks and said, Go right ahead. We dare you. They knew that if there was a great slaughter there that day, that the people would rise up or that Caesar would imprison Pilate. Pilate was already in trouble of not being a good governor, of not keeping the Jews quiet, of there were these insurrections. You had the zealots going around at night as terrorists stabbing Roman soldiers. In fact, Barabbas was one of these insurrectionists. He was guilty of insurrection and murder. And he was set to be crucified publicly to put down the other insurrectionists, put the fear of the empire into their hearts. As we've been reading and seeing in the news lately, people are still using this as a tactic to keep people under their thumb. And so... It was a battle of the egos, and Pilate caved. He didn't kill any Jews that day, and he removed the graven images and hated the Jews ever since. And the Jews knew they had one up on him. In fact, we read in Luke's Gospel that when they say, crucify him, crucify him, and Pilate is reluctant to, they say, in essence, do it, or we'll go tell Caesar. Na 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 na. Do it, or we're going to run to your, to your mama and tell on you. So there was no love at all between Pilate and the Jews. Pilate was angry that the Jews had forced him into this position. 
In this grand drama we've been looking at, you've got the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, the elders. You've got Pilate and Herod, the Gentiles. You've got the crowd now. We saw Jesus' best friend betray him, deny him, I should say, and one of his disciples betray him. Nobody looks good in this picture, in this story, except Jesus. And the better he looks, the worse humanity looks around him. So by his very presence, even in his silence, humanity is put on trial and found wanting, found lacking. There's nothing we see here that endears us to anyone represented other than Jesus. And yet, if we're not careful, we won't see ourselves lumped in with humanity. And so be careful this morning. Make sure you realize that you are humanity, I am humanity. So we're going to look at the verdict, the charges, and the punishment. I know that's not the typical order, but that's the order they tried Jesus, right? They started with the verdict and then the trumped-up charges. So we'll start with the verdict. Guilty. Guilty of what? Well, we'll find out the charges later. But we'll never actually hear Jesus say guilty. It's his silence. It's his silence that tells us we're guilty. He doesn't need to speak. Enough's been said already. There's nothing else to say. He's answered every question. He's taught with great authority. He's had authority over nature, authority over demons, authority over sickness, illness. He has authority over the Word because He is the Word incarnate. He says, you've heard it written, but I tell you today. Nobody ever taught that way. Could you imagine me coming into the pulpit, reading Scripture and saying, well, you've heard that Scripture, but today I tell you. Right. Yeah. I'm going to have to find a new job. Apparently I'm good at changing tires. I won the tire change competition yesterday, but only two other people entered, and one was my son. So, (laughs) it's God's silence that gives us the guilty verdict. Nathan was teaching me the other day, yes, I can learn from those younger than myself, that his professor was telling him in this honor-shame culture to be silent is very shameful. When you are posed a question, your manhood is being put to the test. You better have an answer to the question and a question of your own to follow it up. And Jesus was able to do that. We saw that in the temple where he would answer their questions and then pose a question and embarrass them. But all these charges are being thrown at them, and they're all false charges. In fact, they're hypocritical charges. What was the charge that the Sanhedrin leveled against Jesus, hoping that Pilate would find him guilty and crucify him? What was the charge? 
sedition or insurrection, leading a revolt. When Pilate gave the Sanhedrin an opportunity to release a prisoner, who did they ask to be released? An insurrectionist. You know, their hatred for Jesus blinded them to the fact that they looked absolutely foolish. This man's an insurrectionist. He wants to overthrow Caesar. He's telling people not to pay their taxes. He, told, he said he would tear down the temple. And on and on the lies went. And they have an actual insurrectionist over here. Right? And Pilate says, if you really care about insurrection, if you really care about the empire, then which of these two men would you rather release? And they say, release the insurrectionist. They don't even stop to think how foolish that sounds. They've been exposed, and they don't care. You know, I was thinking more about what what Nathan was telling me about how shameful it would be in that culture not to answer a question. But you know what's even more shameful is when you know you don't need to answer and you're silent. You've won and your opponent knows it. I think Jesus was putting the shame back on them by not answering. I don't need to answer. And you know I don't need to answer. You know I'm right and you're wrong. And so I'm just going to sit here quietly and let you heap more and more condemnation on yourselves as you spit, as you insult. I'm just going to let you expose yourself to the whole world for who you really are. The drama gets so intense that at some point In our modern times, I'm waiting for all the lights to come on and the host of the TV show to come out and say, you're on candid camera. This is who you really are. You know, there's times when you want to help someone who's caught in their sin and they're in denial and you wish somehow you could videotape it and say, if only you could see yourself right now. It's so sad to picture the king of glory sitting there binded with all these posers, these self-styled authority figures arguing and quibbling and squabbling over this man. And he doesn't even say anything. How can a man that's been so good and so wonderful and so silent right now cause so much turmoil, so much fighting. You kill him. No, you kill him. No, you... Well, we can't kill him. Well, I'm not going to kill him. Nobody called a timeout and said, what are we doing here? Wait a minute. This guy did perform miracles. Wait a minute. His teaching is amazing. Maybe he is the real deal. Maybe he is the Messiah. Maybe he is the Son of God. We see in the modern day when 
there's a mob mentality that nobody wants to stop and ask questions. We've been witnessing it in Ferguson, right? Nobody really wants to know the truth. The truth's there, but I don't think anyone wants to hear it right now. So you've got to wait for it all to kind of boil over. It's sad. It's very sad. Everybody has their idea of what happened. They have their own narrative. And if the truth comes out and doesn't fit your narrative, you don't want to hear it. And the narrative here in our drama is that God came down to earth and dwelt among us. Deity became humanity. And humanity rejected God. On this side of the cross, though, we could sit this morning sober-mindedly with time and patience and humility consider who Jesus is, what He's done for us, and what He's asking of us. He's revealed to us that not only are we sinners, but we're far more sinful than we'll ever know. Grace be to God that He doesn't reveal to us just how horrible we really are in light of an infinitely holy and glorious God. He's got to peel back the layers just enough to where we go, oh, it's that bad? Yes, it's that bad. In fact, it's worse, but I'm going to spare you. I guarantee you that early in your Christian walk, others around you will know better than you will know just how sinful you are. But if you walk and grow closer to the Lord and trust Him more and more every day, you will eventually get to the place where the Apostle Paul could say, I am the chief of sinners, the foremost. Not the worst example, but the first example. As Paul knew the Savior better and better and knew himself better and better, realizing just how corrupt he really was. Writing Romans 7, the thing I want to do, I don't, the very thing I don't want to do, I do. Trapped in this flesh, who will save me, O wretched man that I am. Some people think Paul wrote that about his life before he was converted. Certainly, he's writing about his life at that very moment. The terrible irony when God is silent is that this is the indictment on all humanity is that we want God to be silent in a sense. We want God to be silent. That was the temptation in the garden in Genesis 3. Not having to listen to God so you can listen to yourself. You know, the whole world was busy buying and selling and eat, drink, and being merry, and then 9-11 hit. Remember where you were? I remember where I was. I was taking a calculus class at a community college because I was going back to be a teacher, and my degree was in biology, and I needed to get a certificate in mathematics, so I went back and took a bunch of math courses. And I heard the news and ran home, and my wife was watching, and the second tower came down while we were watching, and she was, she was feeding, spoon-feeding Adam. 
baby food. Either Adam or, or Krista. And I remember thinking, I'm so sorry my children have to live in this world. What kind of world are they going to have to live in? And I was supposed to go to school later that day in Stockton to teach, and I figured certainly they're going to cancel school, but they decided not to. They wanted to keep there from being panic and just, you know. It was really hard to go to school that day. I wanted to stay at home with my family. And everybody ran to the churches, and they wanted to hear a word from God, an explanation. They were putting God on trial again, many. Where were you? Why didn't you stop this? Things like this, as bad as it looked on TV, and it was horrible, much more horrible happens around the world every day. And the more plugged in we get to the world, the more our internet reaches and people with their smartphones take pictures, the more we're starting to see just what's always existed in the world. The way humans treat other human beings. And people said, this is the revival our country is needed. Look, the churches are full. And what happened six months later? The regular attenders stayed and the the rest went back to eating, drinking, and being merry. They didn't want to hear from God anymore. They came and they heard what God had to said and they found it wanting and lacking and So now we'll go back to me speaking on behalf of God. I'll be my own God. Thank you very much. Paul writes in Romans 1, and I've, in order to fit all the scripture I wanted on the screen, you see the ellipses. All right, I'm not cutting and pasting. I'm not, this isn't the Jefferson Bible. You can look up the rest of the scripture. I just wanted it all to fit on one screen. Paul says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, notice he says their foolish heart, not hearts, their foolish heart collectively as humanity, and Paul's actually lumping himself in in this category. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man. Therefore, God gave them over. This is God being silent. Okay, you want life without God? I will let you experience that. Now, he hasn't actually gone away. He's not off the throne. He's just letting us sleep in the bed that we've made. He's letting us eat from the feast we've prepared in our own sin, in our exchange of truth. Three times Paul says we've exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and then three times he says, for this reason, God gave them over. For this reason, God gave them over. And finally, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. And if you continue reading the verse, even to the point where men give hearty approval to one another for doing evil. So God says, this is good. This is evil. Do this. Don't do that. 
eventually man starts to add to the list of things that you can do and subtracting from the list of things you shouldn't do. Things become optional. As we're seeing our own culture, it used to just be check the box, male or female, and now there's other options. And they said, we just wanted more options. We promise we'll stop there. And now it's becoming illegal in many places to not celebrate what God has called evil. The baker in Arizona who just said, I just can't make a wedding cake for a a gay marriage. Courts put him out of business. Oh, not only will you make the cake, you will show up to the party and you will clap and you will bring a present. And this is where humanity goes when humanity says, I don't want to listen to God anymore. And you have this sinking suspicion as well as I do that things around here are going to get worse before they get better. It's a scary thing when God is silent. Now, he's not actually silent. But if you won't listen to him, and you want to experience a world without God speaking to you, your flesh may tell you that's a wonderful thing because I can make decisions and not feel guilty about it. I'm here to tell you this morning, sin never delivers what it promises. Always delivers death. The wages of sin is death. If you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. It never brings the freedom you think it'll bring. So what are the charges then? Oh, there's a host of charges that we could look at, but the ones before us are absolutely fascinating to me. We see the envy of God and fearing man instead of God. The Sanhedrin, Pilate said he knew that they handed Jesus over to him to be crucified because they were envious of Jesus. Now, there's a good kind of envy, and I think we should all be envious of Jesus. He's our our target, our model. I want to be like Jesus. Who wants to be like Jesus? Amen. But envy says, well, why does he get to be the perfect one, the beautiful one, the one in authority? Why can't I be? Who does that sound like to you? Satan. Why does God get to be God? Why can't he share? Well, he wouldn't be God. It's it's like the definition of being God is there's only one. And envy will even go as far as to say, well, then if I can't have it, then you can't have it either. That would make me happy. Have you ever been unhappy, and the happy people around you, you were envious, and so you thought you might rain on their parade too? How dare you be happy when I'm unhappy? Now we're all unhappy. Hey, now I'm happy. This is kind of sick. 
Satan, if I don't get to be God and if I don't get the glory, then nobody gets the glory. Satan doesn't care if you worship him or not. He just doesn't want you worshiping the true God. He knows he's lost. He knows he's defeated. But it's like, well, as long as I've lost, I'm going to make sure there's a few less people at the trophy ceremony. I'm going to take you down with me. I don't know that he actually thinks he's lost, though. I think he's still holding out hope. The charge is envy of God. I think what we're seeing here is that the religious leaders of Israel lost sight of the fact that they were supposed to be pointing people to God and pointed people to themselves as God. And then God showed up, and they were angry and envious. Jesus was everything they wished they could be and more, yet with humility and meekness. He was smarter. He was more wise. He was more powerful. He was honest, beautiful, worthy to be followed. And they were none of these things. It's like when you're the big man on campus and then the new kid transfers in. Oh, this guy's got to go. This is no good. Works for the girls, too. (laughs) Right? You're the prom queen or the head cheerleader or whatever brings you self-esteem and then a better version of you shows up. And yet, it's that one that's not prideful. Oh, everybody's prideful, but have you ever met this just really sincere person and they honestly don't know how wonderful they are? And you feel this envy, this, oh. It's almost like you're waiting for them to mess up Nobody's this good. Why do we get upset about that? And here Jesus shows up and those who had self-styled themselves as God, God shows up. And instead of embracing him as Messiah, the one they've been waiting for, they said, no, 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 this guy's got to go. They missed it. When I was in uh, college, I wasn't a believer. I was, Lost and confused and searching and spent a lot of time listening to cynical, skeptical type music. One of my favorite bands was Pink Floyd. The kings of lots of criticism, not a lot of answers. Lots of questions, no answers. Lots of pointing out paradoxes, but no answers. Eventually, the band broke up and Roger Waters, the lead singer, went out on his own and he wrote an album called Amused to Death and he wrote a song called What God Wants, God Gets. God help us all, he says sarcastically, facetiously. Whatever God wants, he gets. God help us all. Uh, I used to really like that song. Because the world was a confusing place to me. And I said, yeah, how come God allows for murder? And why is there rape? And why is there famine? And why are... 
I don't have answers to these questions. And so this is what filled my head was just questions and cynicism, really me putting God on trial. I was raised in a church. But I can see now as a believer that what Roger Waters was really saying is, I would be a better God. If I were God, I could fix everything. Give me a shot at it. There was a man in the Bible named Job who said the same thing, more or less. God, I know you're God, and I'm not supposed to question you, but if you'd let me for a second, I think I've got a good point here. And he questions God, and God tells Job, Now you be silent, O man, and let me question you. And for chapter upon chapter upon chapter upon chapter, God questions Job. And at the end of the questioning, Job says, I've spoken of things too wonderful for me to understand. I cover my mouth and repent in dust and ashes. Really? Do you really think you could do a better job than God? I think we, don't, we would say, well, not universally, but in this particular situation, in this relationship, in my job, my health, my financial security, I think I could do a better job than God. Yet for thousands of years, man has, one by one, every regime, every philosophy has all had its chance to govern, and we, we screw it up every time. We just can't get it right. We can't be God. That's okay. That's a good thing. It's something to be embraced. Fearing man instead of God. Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent, but he was afraid of losing control of the crowd. In fact, he actually thought that the crowd would choose Barabbas because he had just seen a week earlier the crowd shouting, Hosanna, when Jesus entered the city in the triumphal entry. He understood that the Sanhedrin was envious of him, but the crowd, he thought the crowd was for Jesus. And so he thought he had this trump card. Okay, I'm, I'm, I know the Jews have this custom where I release a, a prisoner. This is my out. This is going to get me off the hook. The crowd will choose Barabbas, and then it'll be the Sanhedrin versus the crowd. And then I can just back up and let them figure it out. But he misunderstood the crowd. They didn't want a Messiah. They didn't want God to come and tell them, you need a Savior. They wanted God to come and say, you're the good guys, they're the bad guys. Now let me make things right. They didn't want to hear that we're all the bad guys and we all need a Savior. So that voice needed to go away. Crucify Him. We don't want to hear this message anymore. 
We've talked a lot in the past weeks about acknowledging that we all have this fatal flaw that makes us blind to our own sins. And I read the C.S. Lewis quote last week about how this fatal flaw continually shipwrecks your relationships, your plans, your ministry. And I hope you don't get tired of hearing this because you're going to hear it often. Because it's not one of those one-time messages. It's something we have to hear again and again. Why? Because it's a blind spot. And we're blind to our own blind spots. All of us. This is a wonderful church. I'm so blessed that my family can worship here and and to be called your pastor. It's, It's an overwhelming blessing. Most of my friends in ministry from seminary walked into some pretty difficult church situations. You know, they were called because the last pastor had to leave or left and left a mess behind. That is a hard first calling to walk into. I got off easy, I think. 23 years of being saturated with the Word of God changes hearts. They have to come in and convince you that you don't want topical preaching, you want expositional preaching. Pastor Andy convinced you guys of that a long time ago. And you wouldn't settle for anything but. But I think the one thing where we can really grow as a church is overcoming our fatal flaws. To be able to ask one another, what do you see in me that I don't see in me? Because after six, almost seven years of spending time with you, you get to see patterns in people's lives. And it's like, oh, here we go again. More turmoil with person A, person B is offended, person C is upset, person I see this pattern, and it uproots ministries, it ruins friendships, suddenly people who were close friends now sit on opposite sides of the church, and God is not pleased with this. Not only is he not pleased though, but out of his love for us, he's telling us, you don't have to settle for this. There's freedom in admitting that you don't have it all together, that your sinfulness is worse than you'd ever like to admit. Trust me, other people see it. You know, you'll find out my fatal flaws. You should be able to make an appointment with me and let me know. And I promise not to bite your head off. I promise not to cry unless I'm weeping over my sin. I promise not to do the... Oh, I'm so sorry you feel that way about me. See, you're the one with the problem now. I I need that from you. You need that from me. What a church we could be. What a light to the world. When everyone's saying the emperor's wearing beautiful clothes, we could say in love, no. Because everybody knows They're just waiting for somebody to speak truth. And to speak truth without an explosion going off. I think that's one of the reasons we often don't speak truth is we tiptoe on eggshells around people assuming they're going to respond horribly. 
Or if we do invite somebody to point out our sin, they are now going to take advantage of our confession. But love doesn't do those things. Love is is humble and meek. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love believes the best about one another's intentions. We could be that kind of people. And every time we see in the Gospel here where it says, and they were amazed, the people of Tehachapi could see the way we love one another in full honesty. And they could be amazed. They could say, I want that. I'm afraid, but I want that. We, we could be such a kind of people. Well, Pilate had God standing in front of him, knew he was innocent, and yet was more afraid of the crowd. And it said, wishing to please the crowd, this fear of man, envy of God, fear of man. Strange bedfellows to see in the same passage. Envy of God. Look at His power. Look at His beauty. Look at His truth. And then, but I care more about what these people say about me than than God. Very strange to see them in the same passage. So, humanity is guilty of envying God and caring more about what people think of us than what God thinks of us. Right? That's the reason why you won't let people expose your fatal flaw. God already knows what it is. He's he's not in the dark on this. He made you. He knows your heart better than you know it. The only reason we don't want to say it out loud is because we're afraid of what people will think of us. And yet they probably already know what it is. If they spend any time around you, they know. Better to come to God in humility and say, God, I confess I'm envious of you. I wish at times I could be my own God, but I trust that I would be a horrible God. You're a much better God for me than I am for myself, and you're certainly a much better God for others than I would be for others. And God, I confess that sometimes I care more about what people say about me than what you think about me. Please forgive me. If God is for me, who can be against me? If God loves me unconditionally in Christ, then I can patiently wait for others to learn to love me too. And I would rather you love me for who I really am than some shadow, some masquerade. Isn't that what we're all searching for? That kind of love? To be truly loved? That someone would truly know who I am and still love me? Isn't that what we all want? Yeah? That's the way God loves us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And in Christ, we can learn to love others that way. We can love the unlovely because the lovely one loved the unlovely. We love because he first loved 
us. So good to hear when you confess to the ones you love your fatal flaw and they say, we know, we love you. We wish you wouldn't do that. (laughs) Please stop. But we love you. And we love you more when you're honest than when you pretend to be somebody you're not. Well, what about this Barabbas? The notes in the MacArthur Study Bible, if you use a MacArthur Study Bible, it says, not much is known about Barabbas. We know he was part of an insurrection. It's funny how Mark says he, he was uh, an insurrectionist that was part of the insurrection. I was taught in English class not to like use the same word twice in one sentence. But I think that's the whole point, is we're pointing out Hey, this guy's an insurrectionist. This guy's being charged for insurrection. This guy is the insurrectionist. Look at the hypocrisy one more time of the Sanhedrin. Pilate, we want you to kill him. What for? For insurrection. Okay, I'm going to release a prisoner to you. Well, release the insurrectionist. Makes no sense. The cross that Jesus is died on, and as we're going to see next week, carried the crossbeam of the cross. It was meant for Barabbas. The actual insurrection is that cross was meant for Barabbas. The one who was actually guilty of insurrection. And instead, the one that the governor said, I find no guilt in this man. He is not an insurrectionist. Ends up dying on Barabbas' cross. It says not much is known about Barabbas. Well, I think we do know a lot about him because he's me and he's you. We deserve to be on that cross. Not the perfect one. I kid you not, Barabbas' name in the Aramaic means son of Abba. Son of the Father. Barabbas didn't die on that cross. The son of the Father, the Father, died on that cross. Jesus, the Son of God, the King of the Jews, the King of Kings, the Word incarnate, the perfect one, was found to be not guilty of insurrection, yet died on the cross reserved for those found guilty of insurrection. You and I. Trying to depose God and replace Him with our own personal government. Barabbas, the one whose name means son of father, was set free and replaced by the son of the father. In the end, the Jews, the sons of Abraham, the keepers of God's word, the ones who were looking for the Messiah, killed their own Messiah. They missed him. They had the word and they missed the word. What did they find him guilty of calling himself 
the Son of God. Ultimately, the Son of God was found guilty for being the Son of God. They said they wanted God. God showed up and they rejected Him. It's really the pinnacle of all ironies. This is what it means when theologians say the cross is the penal substitutionary atonement. Penal as in legal system. Half the church works for the correctional institution, right? You understand this word? Substitutionary mean Jesus took our place. He took the punishment we deserved in order to atone for our sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He is punished the way we deserve. We get treated the way He deserves. Not because we actually become righteous, but because His righteousness gets imputed to our account. Believe it or not, apart from the inerrancy of Scripture, perhaps there's no other Christian doctrine that has suffered more attacks than the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ. We'll look at it more next week. No less than a dozen different theories of what the cross means has been floated out there in 2,000 years of Christianity. The Bible clearly teaches the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ, yet the world keeps trying to remove the offense of the cross. The world hates Jesus not because really who he is, but because it hates the necessity of the cross. The cross reminds us that we're not who we think we are and we need a Savior. The world wouldn't mind us talking about Jesus as long as we got rid of the cross. They're trying to pull crosses down all over our nation. People don't want the cross publicly displayed. Let's end with this, Mark 15, 12. So Pilate's at his wit's end. He says, fine, I'll release Barabbas, but this guy's still not guilty. So Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with him who you call the king of the Jews? Isn't that the question of all questions? What will you do with the one whom they call the king of the Jews? What will you do with him? Are you envious that he's a better God than you are? Do you care more about what people think than what Jesus thinks of you? Pilate could have set him free. Everybody knew that he wasn't guilty of anything. Yet he took the coward's way out, scourged Jesus, presented him bloodied with a crown of thorns, and said, Behold the man, hoping the crowd would say, Well, enough is enough. And they shouted, Crucify him. You only have two choices. Either you believe him, trust him, love him, fear him, obey him, adore him, follow him, and proclaim him. It's a, it's a complete package. You don't get to say, Jesus is my, my friend, but not my Lord. Jesus is my Savior, not my Lord. Give me Jesus, but don't give me your doctrine. It's Jesus' doctrine. Sure, we, we, may, we may get it wrong here or there, but 
we need to all agree that there is a doctrine that is Jesus's. And it's here for us to find, obey, and proclaim. Your other choice is to envy him, dismiss him, distrust him, ignore him, misquote him, mock him, deny him, in essence, try to crucify him, but you can't make him go away. He rose from the dead. He's back. He's back. One day you're going to stand before him. God the Father will say, what did you do with my son? What did you do with my son? If you haven't believed him, trusted him, loved him, feared him, obeyed him, adored him, followed him, proclaimed him, today's the day. You're not sitting on the fence. You're on one side or the other. If you've never made that decision, I would love to talk to you after church. Today I'll be waiting here at the pulpit. Amen? Amen. Let me dismiss us. Father God, Son of God, Holy Spirit, the beautiful one, the truthful one, we confess, I confess, in my sin that I'm envious of you because you're everything I want to be. And in my weakness, instead of admiring you for it, I'm jealous of it. Cleanse me by the blood of Jesus. Forgive me so that I can envy you in the right way, that I would long to be like Jesus so that I could finally worship you in the way you deserve to be worshipped, that I can obey you the way Jesus obeyed perfectly, that I could say with every fiber of my being, your will be done and not my own. Lord, I pray for that searching soul out there like I was in my college days, full of cynicism, skepticism, doubt, that the light of your word would come flooding in and fill their heart with love and they would receive you by faith. Please do this for their good and your glory. I beg you in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.